For those that remain in the auditorium or are watching online, please take your Bibles, if you would, to the book of James, James chapter 1. We started our summer series through the book of James last Sunday, and we'll look to finish chapter 1, Lord willing, together this morning. If you're new to us, thank you again so much for being here this morning. We pray that you have felt and continue to feel welcome. If you don't have a Bible, we want you to have a copy in your hand, electronically or otherwise, because everything we do and say uh, comes from the Bible, is rooted and grounded in God's holy word. And so if you don't have a copy somewhere under the chairs in front of you, uh, should be a copy of God's Word, and in that particular copy, I believe it's on page 950 or 951, James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. This morning, we want to talk about obedience, and perhaps instantly to your mind come memories of childhood where you were not obedient and the consequences that came thereby. And so we think of obedience all too often as something negative, as something oppressive, maybe even something that is not fully possible. Things like despair or discouragement or frustration come to mind. I know I should be more obedient and I'm not. I'm a big failure. That's sort of how we feel oftentimes when this topic comes up. We know who we are supposed to be in Christ. God says in his word of 1 Peter chapter 1, Be holy because I am holy. Thanks God for giving us an attainable standard. That's fantastic. And unfortunately, as we went through the book of Romans and again through Hebrews, we continually forget that the indicatives in Scripture always come before the imperatives. And what we mean by that is the truths of God's Word always precede the commands of God's Word. The realities of Scripture always precede the pronouncements of Scripture, the commands of Scripture, the requirements of Scripture. Now, James is a slightly different type of preacher than the author of Hebrews. We're not sure who the author of Hebrews was, but he has a different style than James. James is very blunt, bold, forthright, and to the point. And it's good that in God's Word there's different styles because we're very different people. And some of us enjoy that sort of in-your-face type preaching, and others don't. But if you particularly enjoy that sort of fire and brimstone, uh, in-your-face style, that's James. James gets right to the point. And so very practical book, as we've mentioned, and we look forward to continuing through it. But don't miss what James is actually saying by jumping to the commands that he reiterates without first being reminded of the promises that he reminds us of. And so... Before we read verses 19 to 27 then, let's remind ourselves of verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be kind of firstfruits of his creatures. God chose us to be his children 
He enables us to be his children. He births us into his family through the word of truth and has a goal for us that would be kind of first fruits of his creation that we would show to those who do not yet worship God what it looks like to worship God, that we would show individuals who are not yet in relationship with him what it looks like to be in relationship with him. That comes first. Then we get to our passage for this morning. So keep that in mind as we dive in to this passage. Also bear in mind James's audience. These individuals are Jewish Christians primarily. They are dispersed throughout the known world and there is persecution already happening and more persecution on the horizon. Perhaps the greatest persecution of Christians comes under Emperor Nero and then there is also heightened persecution under Domitian. But during these two reigns and also somewhat from other emperors, the Christians are being persecuted and James wants to write to these individuals to say, Scattered as you are, don't have your faith in God, don't have your relationship with God, shrivel up, wither, and die under persecution. Persecution is coming, is already here, life is not fair, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, things are not as they should be, things are not as they're going to be, but don't despair, obey. Don't shrivel up and just reject Christ. No, keep moving forward. The light shines brighter, the darker it gets. So keep moving forward, and that is where we find ourselves in our passage this morning. So once again, James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of God. Did you notice what I mentioned about James? Gets right to the point and lets us know how it is and how it's supposed to be. And that style is going to remain throughout the rest of this letter. So what is he talking about? Last week he laid the foundation for all of this to say we need to have patience. And not just the type of patience we normally think of, but that serenity that comes from rooting ourselves, our lives, our thinking, our hearts, our attitudes in the character and plan of God so that we're better able to serve him. Now he comes to us and says we want to obey. We want to rightly reflect the character of God. What does God look like? 
That's what we want to look like. How does God think? That's how we want to think. What does God do? That's what we want to do. What would God say in this circumstance? That's what we want to say in this circumstance. How can we reflect rightly the true character of the one who owns us and birthed us twice? He made us and remade us and is remaking us in Christ. How do we honor him? How do we look like him? And so in the first place this morning, we see some foundations for obedience. What has to be in place in order for us to be able to obey? Now again, before we get to 19 through 21, recognize and understand the foundation is verse 18. We have to be his. We are unable to obey him at our natural state. We can try, and we can do things that approximate obedience. We can have morality of a certain kind, but we cannot rightly reflect the character of God unless we are truly his children. Regeneration needs to be in place. But assuming, as James does, based on verse 18, that we are regenerated, we are converted, we are children of God, what, is, what are some of the foundations that need to be in place? In the first place, we need to be eager to listen to God's word, quick to hear. You ever talk to somebody and it feels like they're just waiting for you to be quiet so they can jump in? Like they're just kind of watching your lips and once your lips stop moving, they've got something to say. You ever have a conversation with somebody and whatever story you share, they've got a better one? James says this type of self-centeredness should not be a part of the heart of a believer in Jesus Christ. There ought to be an eagerness, a heart attitude of desiring to hear from God. What does Job say at the end of his book? I thought I knew who you were, but now, now I know better who you are. I'm going to lay my hands on my mouth. What Job's trying to say is, I'm going to shut up for a little bit and let God speak. We presume that we know more than we do. We presume we're more intelligent than we actually are. We presume that our opinions are the best, because after all, they're ours and we're awesome. We presume that our perspective is 100% correct, because again, it's ours and we're awesome. We have a self-centeredness that's innate in us, apart from the gospel transforming work of God in our lives. And so we are quick to speak. We want our opinions to be heard. We want our articles that we've found to be shared. We want our opinions to be heard. We want our perspectives to be considered. We are quick to speak. And God says through his servant James, no. As a follower of Jesus Christ, there ought to be an eagerness to listen to God, to hear from him. And this can be particularly difficult for those of us who are engaged in things like a Bible reading plan, like the constant study of God's word, because we can be so close to it and yet so far away. See, sermons are not for other people. They're for you and me. You ever do this? Man, so glad so-and-so is here. They really needed to hear that this morning. We can read and interact with God's word as if it's for other people. 
and not for us. And I don't mean for us in the sense of like that it's ours, but I mean for us in the sense that God is calling us to hear. He's calling us to listen. He's calling us to obey. Now, I love to read and I love to share and I love to preach, but there is a danger in that, that this word of God is not just for you, it's also for me. I need to have an eagerness to listen to the word of God, to hear what God has to say. And so the psalmist would say in the song that we're going to close with this morning, later on in that psalm, be still and know that I am God. We have a really hard time with being still in our society, in our generation. It's a rare moment where we're just sitting and being ourselves. We have one of these. We have other options. We're typically not eager to listen. We're eager to be entertained. We're eager to speak. We're eager to share. But we're not as often as we should be eager to listen. James says one of the foundations of obedience is you have to shut up and allow God to speak. Because we say we want to obey him, what is it that we're supposed to obey? Uh, I don't know exactly. I haven't listened to him. That needs to be in place. We, in the second place, then need to be careful before we speak, slow to speak. How often do we rush into things? We don't have all the information. We haven't heard everything that we need to hear, but we've come to very firm conclusions that we want to share with anybody who will listen to us. And James says once again, time out. We ought to be careful before we speak. One of my biblical counseling verses, key verses, Proverbs 18, 13. Someone who answers a matter before they have all the information, is a fool. I don't know anybody here would say, a fool? That's me. Sign me up. We don't want to be fools. We don't want to be foolish. So Solomon would tell us, and get all the information first. Something happens, whether it's a news event in our society or whatever it might be, and we jump in there, guns blazing. We're ready to go. Fully formed opinions based on very little information. And James says that is not the heart of God. It doesn't rightly reflect the character of God. Because what first comes out more often than not, most often is us and not him. Right? Those fully formed and hard and fast opinions that come quickly without all the information are rarely, if ever, the voice of God and almost exclusively the voice of me or you. And therefore, James says, we need to be careful before we speak. Number three, we need to be resistant to selfish outbursts, slow to anger. There should be a hesitancy on our part to give full expression to our frustrations immediately. We see this in many ways. Road rage would certainly be one of them. 
I'm as guilty of this as anybody else, I'm sure. I sometimes joke after expressing my immediate opinion of someone else's driving skills that I'm very glad they could hear me in the other vehicle because that's sure to change the way that they operate a motor vehicle. Resistant to selfish outbursts. I have something that I need to say and everybody needs to hear it. And James says, that's not the character of God. It doesn't rightly reflect who he is. He is meek as he calls us to in verse 21. If you were in Christ's position prior to the crucifixion, how long would you last before smiting somebody? I don't know about you, but I would not have lasted very long. The mockery to be spit on. Not sure if anybody spat on you. There's very few more degrading things to have happen. To have your beard pulled out of your face How long before we'd have said enough of this? Jesus' character is meekness, strength under control. Our character far too often is angry outbursts. I've had enough of this. I have rights, by the way. How dare you treat me this way? I have things to say, and you better listen. And James tells us that doesn't reflect the character of God. Paul Tripp has an illustration that he uses, and I've used it frequently in my biblical counseling. If I have this water bottle here, and I open it, take the cap off, and shake it, water is going to come out. Why? Some people would say, well, because you took the cap off. Some people would say, because you shook the bottle. And Tripp would say, yes, but the actual answer is, it's because there's water inside. When you squeeze a Christian, what should come out? More Jesus. But when we get squeezed by circumstances and any number of things, what too often comes out quickly? More us. So James says there needs to be a lot of Christ in there so that when it's agitated, when the cap is blown off, so to speak, and we're shaken... What comes out? More Jesus and less of us. Resistant, selfish outbursts. And lastly, childlike submission to God. He says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Slow down. And listen, shut up, and stop being so quick to speak, and check your angry outbursts that are almost exclusively you and not Jesus. The unbridled, unchecked anger of humanity, James says, cannot accurately reflect the character of God. 
It can't advance God's righteousness. It doesn't say that anger, all anger is sin. Paul will let us know in Ephesians, be angry and don't sin. So anger and sin can't be the same thing. And we'll say more about this in the Q&A afterwards. The reality is, these types of selfish outbursts, James says, don't work God's righteousness. Who has been yelled at into the kingdom of God? Who's been argued into a relationship with Jesus Christ? That over-the-top, aggressive, me-first type of attitude does not reflect God's character. So he says, what do you need to do? Put that aside, as Paul also say, put off and put on. Put off that sinfulness that continues to trip us up, that selfishness that is fully on display far too often, and instead receive with meekness and humility, listen eagerly to the word of God, because it and it alone is able to save your souls. There's never been a previous generation with more platform to share their opinions. There's whole social media apps dedicated to just that. You have an opinion, share it. Whether it's fully formed or not, whether it's fully informed or not, whether it accords with reality or not, you're a superstar and you should be heard and you should be applauded. And there's never been more mechanisms for narcissism than any previous generation. And James would say in the midst of all of that, our calling in Christ is less of us and way more of him. That's the foundation for obedience. If you want to please the one who made you and remade you and is remaking you in Christ, you need to have a whole lot less of you and a whole lot more of him. So how does James define then obedience for us? What does obedience look like in verses 22 through 25? In the first place, belief is a verb, not a noun. Jeff Christofferson, who is the president of the CNBC, made this statement at a conference that I was at, and it's stuck with me ever since. Far too often in our circles, or certainly the circles that I travel in, belief is a noun. It's a set of propositional truth statements. This we believe as a set of uh, statements that we mentally assent to. I believe that this is true, and I believe that this is true, and I believe that this is true. And so belief can, in some sense, be a noun. Those things are true or not true, and we can say, look, that is what I believe. But what you believe is how you behave. You say that you believe these things, but let me observe you for a day or two, or maybe even in even an hour or two, and we'll see if that's what you actually believe. You can say, this is our statement of faith on our website, or this is a creed that I sort of confess, but does it impact how you live? Does it impact how you speak? Does it impact how you do business? Does it impact how you interact with people? Does it, interact, does it impact how we do church? This is on display in any church or institution. You go on a website and you read through someone's statement of faith, an institution, a church's statement of faith. Broadly speaking, within Christendom, they're generally speaking quite similar. Unless you look really hard and know exactly what you're looking for, you'd be hard-pressed to know, is this organization 
legitimate? Is this organization Christ-like or not? Just based on their set of statements. What do you need to do? You have to immerse yourself in their culture. Do they believe this? Do they act like this? Are these the things that they say they hold dear, but do they actually hold them dear? Belief is a verb, not a noun. What does James say? Be doers of the word and not just hearers. Because if you are a hearer only, you deceive yourself. There are Christians who could get an A plus on a theology exam and a D minus on living in a Christ-like way. You can explain the creeds and confessions of the faith and still be a jerk. And James says those two things shouldn't coexist. And he's going to expand on that in chapter 3 when he talks about the tongue. How can there be salt water and fresh water from the same source? It can't be. Shouldn't be. It is self-deception to simply have a, a mental assent to things with it not impacting how you live, speak, interact, and feel, and, and the attitudes you have. So truth must then be consistently lived, and James gives us an illustration. It's very familiar to us, I'm sure. The illustration of a mirror. How I used to read this passage was an individual looks in the mirror, sees something wrong with their face, other than what you can't change, doesn't change it, just walks away. It, it, it smacked to me in this text prior to this of, a, of a, a sense of carelessness. Yeah, 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 I know I got some kale in my teeth. Why I have kale in my teeth? Because I never eat kale, but I've got some kale in my teeth and I've got some gunk in my eyes and whatever, but yeah, yeah, whatever, and just go. That's somewhat perhaps how we've read this passage, but I don't think that's what this passage is saying. Walk through, with it, walk through it with me if you would. He says... In verse 23, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face. The, the, the looking into scripture and the looking into the mirror are two different words, but they mean essentially the same thing. The looking is as intent into the mirror as it is into the word of God. This person looks in the morning and makes sure that everything's good to go. But it's not carelessness, it's forgetfulness. What does he say? Verse 24, he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. I was mentioning this to Pastor Luke in our sermon preview. I look in the mirror in the morning and I probably don't see my face again until at night when I look in it again as I'm brushing my teeth before bed. How often do we glance in a mirror in the course of a day? Now, some could argue I need to look in the mirror a bit more than I do, but really, how often do we look in the mirror? And so James is saying, look, that first look is an intent look. We want to see what we look like and we want to make sure we're presentable to the outside world. But in between that and the next time we look in the mirror, we completely forget what we look like. We don't see our own face as God designed our eyes and our head. We can't see what we look like. And so it's not carelessness, it's forgetfulness, because then what does he say in verse 25? But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, God's word, and perseveres. See, not forgetful. How often do we read our portion of scripture for the day? It makes no impact during that reading and does not make any impact throughout the rest of the day. But we checked a box. 
I am not disregarding or denigrating Bible reading. I think it's vital. I think we need to be in God's word. As we've heard this morning, how many languages do not even have God's word in their language? And we have it in more versions and more access to it than perhaps any other language at any other generation at any time in history. So not reading it is a tragedy and a travesty. But merely reading it is also problematic. Simply checking a box and not having it impact us is not helpful. Not being a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. We always should come to God's word saying, God, what do you have for me in this? And what do I need to change? How can you change me, I should say, in this way? Eager to listen, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. God, start with me. Change me into your image. And then lastly, then, what are the results of obedience in verses 26 and 27? There are three. Three main things that James wants to focus on, and then he's going to pick these up throughout the rest of his letter. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. We must have controlled speech. Controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, guided by, bounded by the word of God and spoken in the heart of God and with the heart of God. James is going to spend a whole chapter on this, chapter three. Very familiar on the tongue. Some of the most direct biblical addressing of our speech. And James gives us a preview here. If you say that you love Jesus, but you speak consistently in a way that does not rightly reflect who he is, there's a problem. Go through the Gospels and see how Jesus speaks. How quickly will you have gotten frustrated at those 12 guys? I would not have spoken to those guys as Jesus did. I don't know if I would have picked them in the first place, but assuming that I did, how long would it take before I just, guys, seriously? I just shared my heart with you about how I'm going to be crucified, and you're arguing about who's going to sit on my right and my left in the coming kingdom of God, and you sent your mom to do the dirty work? Come on, guys. How frustrated would we have been at ourselves in the presence of the perfect Son of God, Son of Man? How does Jesus speak? What is his heart? He speaks with compassion. He is long-suffering. He is gentle. He is kind, and he is good. So James says, our speech must match Christ's speech, and in order for that to happen, our heart needs to match his. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Do we have the same heart that Christ has for people? Because if we run people down, if we speak to people in a harsh way, in a condemnatory way, in a derogatory way, we are not speaking to them with the heart of Christ. We are not speaking to them the way Christ has spoken and speaks to us. 
In the second place, we must lovingly help the helpless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And James is going to turn our attention to this in chapter 2. Not showing partiality and then helping those who are helpless. This category of individuals are individuals that cannot help us in return. We typically operate on a you scratch my back, I scratch yours mentality. Sure, I'll help, but you owe me one. I'll get you later. Rarely, unless it truly is in the spirit of Christ, do we help with no strings attached. So let me ask you all this, all of us this morning. What did you bring to the table as far as it relates to your relationship with God? What did you offer him? What does he get in return for a relationship with you? What did we just sing? May Christ be all and I be nothing. What did we bring? We brought nothing to the table. God had no needs. There was nothing he was lacking. It's not a two-way relationship. It's from him down to us. And yet we oftentimes relate to other people in a top-down way or in a reciprocal way. I'll help you, but you'll help me. That's how this works. And if you can't help me, if you're helpless, there's no way that you could repay this money that I might give you or this help that I might give you, then I'm not sure that I can help you. God helping us is always help given to the helpless. So our help also ought to be in the direction of those who are helpless and hurting. And then lastly, we need to actively mortify sin and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This he will pick up in the first part of chapter four in an extended discussion of worldliness. How can the things that hate God, that are against him, that are darkness, attract us when we are light and love and life? How can the things that have hatred towards the one that we say we love have any attractiveness for us? And yet, unfortunately, oftentimes they do. And so James says, if we're going to rightly reflect the character of God, we cannot love what he hates. Now again, don't take any of this this morning and say, got some work to do. Yes, we all do. But remember verse 18, indicatives before imperatives. All of this flows out of a heart after God. All of this flows out of the heart that God has given us. We had a heart of stone, God has given us a heart of flesh. The only way any of this is possible is through him and through the help and the strength and the wisdom that he provides. Needs to be a whole lot of praying. This isn't a list of do's and don'ts. That's how we, we think because we're individualistic, right? Okay, so this is on me. No, it's not about you. It's never about you. So we need to keep getting that out of our heads. It's about him and his glory. So how is any of this possible? Only by him. And so the foundations for obedience. We need to take a lot of more time listening to him, 
a lot less time speaking our oftentimes unfounded and untested opinions. Let me just put it in practical terms. We did post a lot less on social media, to be frank. We need to put less of ourselves out there and a whole lot more of Jesus. We need to spend a lot more time listening to him and understand that how he defines obedience is his character actively lived out. It's not just a set of truth statements. It's things that we do and say and don't do and don't say. Which looks like controlled speech, helping the helpless in a loving, not condescending or patronizing way and resonating with the heart of God, loving what he loves and hating what he hates. So our response is, how does the gospel impact our daily obedience? The gospel is not just a prayer that we prayed or a hope for the future. The gospel is something we need to preach to ourselves every day because we need to be actively reflecting the character of the one who saved us and is remaking us into his character. Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity that we have to gather in your name this morning once again, to celebrate all that you've done for us. It's more than we can possibly fathom. We cannot earn any of it. We are not deserving of any of it. We are not worthy of it. And yet, Father, we are not worthless. We are loved by you. We are made uniquely by you and are being remade in the image of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are your children if we are yours this morning. We are lights in the darkness. We are life in the midst of death. We are help and hope and a future in the midst of destruction and chaos and fear. And we are all these things not because we're smarter or better or more moral. We're all these things only because of your amazing grace as we've already sung this morning as well. So God, help us. We are being pushed by our culture to advance ourselves. We are being shown every day the reality of individualism. It's all about you, your wants, your needs. Father, help us to push back against that. And it starts with each one of us. It's not about us. It never was, never will be. It's all about you. And so, Father, help us to have your heart a heart which beats with love and care and kindness and gentleness and compassion for those who do not yet know you and do not yet worship you, who are lost, who are full of fear and anxiety, who are scared, who are angry, who are struggling, who are in pain and have no hope. Father, we have hope only because of your grace. So Father, let us not look on those who do not yet worship you with disdain with disgust, as being lesser than or inferior to us. But Father, help us to look on them as you do, with compassion and care. Your son from the cross, as he begins his grueling experience, cries out to you, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they are doing. Words echoed by one of your servants, Stephen, as he is being martyred. May that be our heart as well, Father. Their anger, their frustration, their fear, their struggle, their pain, their attempts to cancel, none of that is ultimately directed towards us because once again, it's not about us. It's ultimately directed towards you, Father. Help us to serve you, to shine you, 
to rightly reflect your character, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.